There are several powerful drives that must be satisfied for us to live. Air, you can't live without breathing, without taking oxygen in. If, if you don't have oxygen, you will soon perish. Sleep, sleep is necessary, right? We can't, uh, you'll go pretty crazy if you don't sleep after a couple of days. Food, of course, we can last quite a while without food, some of us more than others. And yet, we need it. We need it. But water, water, we need water. You can't live but a few days without water. And if you're deprived of it, you will die. And of course, we get all of these scientifically. We know how these things work on the body. We, we're very enlightened when it comes to all the natural processes of our biology. We need air. We need water. We need sleep. We need food. We need, of course, other things in life that make it um, uh, enjoyable. But, um, but we understand our need for water viscerally. We've been thirsty. We've experienced that kind of feeling where we get that cup of cold water and it satisfies us. It fills our longing for that and it, and it does so biologically. But, but with our need for God, that's hard for us to understand. It's not the same way. It's not the same hunger or thirst that we have for food or water when we think about our relationship with God. But, but our existence is actually much more dependent on God than it is on water. And for some of us, that's hard for us to understand. See, throughout Scripture, uh, the Scriptures use the metaphor of thirsting for God as a, a metaphor for our relationship with Him or how our relationship with Him should be, that we should be dependent on God in the same way we are dependent on water. We should need and desire and long for God the same way we need and long for water. We have been working our way through John chapter 7. And the specific context of that is the Feast of Booths. And Jesus stands up on the, at the end of the Feast of Booths and He cries out this sermon, a small, small short sermon, calling the people of God to come to Him and drink. If they are thirsty. And so, as you're able this morning, um, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of John. It's printed for you in your bulletin, but it's also maybe in the Pew Bible in front of you, John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. Unlike all the other drives that must be constantly satisfied, Jesus promises that those who come and drink from him will find an inexhaustible source. Of new life. Let's read this together. John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to drink from Christ, we ask for hearts that are thirsty, 
Help us to know our thirst, our need to come to Christ. And draw us by faith to see that He is the only one who could satisfy all of our longings. Open our hearts to receive this, Your Word. For we pray this in His name. And Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, the context of this whole of chapter 7 is the Feast of Booths. And what was the Feast of Booths to commemorate? Why did each year they have this celebration where they all come to Jerusalem? All the males, at least, are required to come to Jerusalem. They set up tents. They live in the tents for eight, seven, or eight days. They feast, and that celebration was to commemorate God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. Over 40 long years, God led the people of Israel in the wilderness, providing for their every need. He fed them manna from heaven, and He gave them water from the rock to drink from. And during that whole 40 years, their clothes did not wear out. And their sandals did not break, but God sustained and provided for them. And each year they celebrate that. They are reminding themselves of God's faithful provision for them as they wandered in the wilderness. And each day, at the beginning of the day, the high priests, along with a procession of priests, would take a golden urn and they would march down to the pool of Siloam. And they would dip the urn in the water and then they would march all the way up to the, to the temple. And when they got to the altar outside of the temple, they would pour out the water onto the altar. And they did that every day for six days. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times. And, and as they processed up to the temple, they would sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. These are called the Hallel Psalms. They all begin and end with praise the Lord. Hallelujah is praise the Lord in Hebrew. And so they are singing those psalms as they march up to the temple and the water is poured out onto the altar. And we see this as early as 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. There in Shiloh, this cer- ceremony is, uh, commemorates God's provision of water to them in the desert. And this This is the background, this is the context for Jesus on that last great day to stand up and give his sermon calling the people to come and to drink from him. Now in order for us to understand what Jesus is doing here, we need to connect several Old Testament themes of thirst and God's provision of water. And the first is of course that seminal moment when Israel is in the wilderness and has no water and is wondering how on earth they're going to survive. And and maybe this was a conspiracy designed by Moses just to bring them out into the wilderness to kill them. So I want to read a few verses from Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidium. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people 
there thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What a story. I mean, I don't know. There's a couple of times when I was in the desert in Iraq where I thirsted with that kind of thirst. But I knew as soon as I got back to my vehicle, there was water bottles waiting for me. These people are wandering in the desert and there is no water. You don't wander in the desert with no water. That's a recipe for death. And there are upwards of six million people from, from at least one to six million people are wandering in the wilderness. Where are you going to get water for all of those people? And they're desperate and they begin to quarrel with Moses. They complain about God to Moses and they complain to God about Moses. And why is this story included in Scripture? Is it just a, a, you know, a lesson uh, you know, for, for us to, to remember that God provides in the wilderness? Well, sure, yeah, I think that's, that's true. But I think it's, it's much more than that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. See, God is using very tangible, very visceral bodily experiences that we all have. We all thirst for water. We all need to eat food. Those two lessons, Israel needed to learn that in the exact same way, they needed to depend on God. Their hunger for food needed to match their hunger for God. Their thirst for water needed to match their thirst for God. And so he gave them manna and he provided water from the rock. And thirst is then becomes an apt metaphor for the kind of longing the kind of desire that we should have for God. The psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 cries out, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, the psalmist is saying exactly what Israel is saying in the wilderness. We need water. But he's saying it of his relationship with God. He's crying out for God to come and satisfy him. His soul is thirsting after God. But the thing is that our heart can play, trick, can play tricks on us by suggesting that we want something else. That that thirst can be satisfied with something other than God, maybe even just with water, but oftentimes we know what that longing is, that desire that kind of bubbles up within you, and you're not exactly sure what 
will satisfy it. And so you try all kinds of things. You try to fill it with anything that will satisfy. And Jesus gives two commands. He says, come and drink. If anyone thirsts, and by the way, that's everyone. Everyone thirsts. Come and drink. And here we are reminded of Isaiah 51.5. Maybe they sang this at the feast. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast Sure love for David. See, Isaiah cries out to the people of Israel, why are you spending your money on things that will never satisfy you? Come and buy from me without price. Come, I offer you satisfaction. Hear my words, incline your ear so that your soul may live. Listen diligently to me. Notice that when What Jesus offers, He offers freely. He doesn't say, come and and I'll give you a good deal. He doesn't say, come and we can negotiate a price. He says, just come and drink. He offers it freely to all. Come and drink. We see that this is the very essence of saving faith. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. He offers Himself to you. You don't pay for that to receive it. You just receive it as a gift. You accept it. You take it. You drink it. You trust and you believe. It's not a call to work. It's a call to come and drink. That is to receive his life. It's free. Now there are, there are two things that are necessary for that to be true. For you to come and to drink, you need to know that you're thirsty. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to go for a drink. And you also must trust that He can satisfy your thirst. You have to know that you are thirsty. You have to know that you need something. And then you have to see in Jesus the one who can, the only one who can satisfy that thirst. So I want to look at those two concepts for just a moment. In order to to want to come to Christ, you have to know that you need him, which means that you must be aware of your sin. You must be aware that you have something in you that needs to be filled, that you are spiritually dehydrated. You know when you're dehydrated, right? Your mouth gets dry. You might get a headache. You might get faint or weary. What what are the symptoms that you're thirsty for Christ? How do you know that you are thirsty for Christ? Well, very basically, it's a lot. There's a lot of different symptoms. You could say, Depression, despair, persistent sadness, unrequited love, unmet expectations. 
hopelessness, fear, anxiety, lethargy, and a longing for for just more, just a sense of knowing that this cannot be all there is. We don't recognize this often as a need for Christ, and, and so we try to find satisfaction elsewhere. We know that there's a hunger for something, but we're not sure what it is, and so we try to fill it with all kinds of other things. Relationships, money, sex, power, more stuff. If I buy that newest iPhone 15, I'm going to be happy, finally. Vacations, accomplishments, experiences. Right? We all, we all have this hunger and we try to fill it with something. We try to assuage that thirst with something that we think will satisfy us. Now, there's nothing wrong with money or sex or relationships or even power, even stuff. Or our accomplishments. There's nothing necessarily sinful and wrong with those things. But when we pursue them without reference to God, they do disappear in our hands. We're never able to grasp them. Somebody asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar. Just one more dollar. It will never be enough. It will never satisfy you enough. Even our relationships, which are good and God-given, they are not designed to carry the weight of our relationship with God. Your spouse can never be Christ for you. He or she could never satisfy all your longings like God Himself can and offers When we pursue these other means of satisfaction apart from Christ, we find that we never never get there. We never have them. But when we pursue God, we find that He throws in all the rest. When we make God our goal, when we strive to, to drink of Christ, when we come to Him and we find Him satisfying, it's only then that our relationships make sense. It's only then that the good gifts that God gives us can actually be rejoiced and used properly. Some of us have come and and drank from Christ and and then found it hard. Found that we're tempted to look elsewhere. Maybe we just kind of supplement We'll just add in things on the side. Yes, we we come to church and we go through the motions and we take the sacraments and we enjoy Bible study and yet we're continually looking for other things to satisfy. We're constantly supplementing our faith with something else that the world offers. And we confessed earlier our sin using Jeremiah 2. And there the prophet As Ken ably summarized, the people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, these are the covenant people of God. They have access to God in a way that other nations do not. And yet, They are forsaking the fount of living waters to dig out trenches to drink out of. Do you know that you're thirsty? 
The second thing needed to come and drink is for you to see and believe that in Christ you found a fountain that will satisfy. That is, you have to come and drink of Christ by faith. You have to trust that in Him your satisfaction is found. And only in Him. Christ is the fountain of living water. Living means that it never runs out. It's inexhaustible. It's always new and fresh. We settle for so little when we look for satisfaction apart from Christ. I'm reminded of that quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, it's not that our desires are are too strong. It's that they're too weak. It's that we want the waters in the cistern and not the living water of Jesus Christ. You see, either you will find Christ infinitely satisfying and you will pursue Him, or you will pursue satisfaction through other means. Pursue Christ. Come and drink of Him and you will find that He is a source of life beyond anything worth comparing. Here we need to kind of circle back around to Exodus 17 and the method that God gave Moses to get the water from the rock. Remember that in verse 6 it says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Did you get that? Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 10.4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see, you have Moses And then you've got a crowd of grumbling people. And you've got a staff. And God says, I'm going to stand there right in front of the rock. And I want you to hit the rock. And water is going to come out of the rock. I want you to strike me. And I will provide from myself waters for you to drink. And Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and says, If you're thirsty, come and drink from me. And then he offers His life in your place. He is lifted up on the cross and His side is pierced and blood and water flow. And there on the cross is living water that flows inexhaustibly to us in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He who knew no sin became sin for us. To offer us that life, that drink that would well up within us fountains of living water. In order to come to Christ, you must know that you're thirsty. Are you thirsty? 
And you must find in Christ a trustworthy satisfaction. And to answer, how does Christ give us this living water to drink? We need to look at the rest of this text in verse 38 through 39. John is so helpful in the Gospel of John because all throughout it, he keeps giving us little clues on what we're reading. He tells us, he tells us beforehand, this he said because this. And he, he sort of clues us into what's going on because we don't fully understand. And that's what he's doing here. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, well, what does that mean? How, how is that possible? What does God use to fill us with that kind of, who, who are thirsting, to give us drink? How do we drink from Christ? John gives us his apostolic interpretation. He said, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, Jesus is not yet glorified means that Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. We know that from this moment, it's, it's about six months until Jesus is crucified. And that's when Jesus will be glorified. And he, as he says in John 14, now is the hour for the Son to be glorified. Those who believe in Jesus, that is those who have come and, and, and sought their thirst to be assuaged in Him, those who believe receive the Spirit. And the Spirit is our access to Christ while He is in heaven. When John is talking about Jesus being glorified, he's talking about His death, His resurrection, and of course His ascension up to the Father, where He is sitting. Well, if Jesus is in heaven, how do I have access to Him? How can I come to Him and drink? I'm not with Him. I don't see Him. How is it that I can come and drink? Well, John helpfully tells us that that the Scriptures are teaching us that this is the the result of the Spirit. When God uh, causes His Son to ascend to heaven with Him, He also sends the Spirit of His Son to be with us. He is the one who mediates the life of Christ. And it's it's as if Christ is there with you. Present with you always. The Spirit that mediates Christ. We we now need to look at the nature of this living water. See if we can discover its effects in our own life. The living water that is offered that's bubbling out of our bellies. That's what the the text literally says. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said of the Spirit. If the Spirit is mediating that living waters, what is that? And the answer is the living water is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, there's no benefits that we receive that are apart from Jesus. It's not as if Salvation is something out here. And God just gives you a payment. God gives you His Son. God unites you to His Son that when His Son died, you died. That union is affected by the Spirit. 
So when you have living waters flowing out of you, it's because you have access to the Son. His death gives you life. That is, His passive obedience is imputed to you by faith so that His death restores you to life. And His life gives you righteousness. His life, mediated by the Spirit, gives you positive righteousness. As if you had obeyed the law. The Spirit takes Christ and applies His work to you. He unites you to Christ in His death and resurrection. So living water is not some benefit outside of Christ. It's Christ Himself. We then have access through the Spirit to the resurrection life. That is a new life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul's saying that the same resurrection power that brought Jesus up from the dead, that same power lives within you in the spirit, in his, by His Spirit. And he, the Spirit will give life to your mortal body in the same way. The effect of receiving the Spirit is, of course, transformation. And we can think about this in two ways, personally and corporately. Personally, the Spirit is at work remaking you to be more like Christ. He's transforming your life so that you begin to resemble Christ. So that more and more you are dying to sin and living to Christ. We call this sanctification. Of course, it's, it's wrought in repentance and good works. There as the Spirit is transforming you individually so that you begin to look like Christ. But it's also corporate. The Spirit remakes us as a, a body of believers. And the, the reformation of society happens when individuals are turned to God by the Spirit and their lives are reformed. What happens when a, a whole neighborhood becomes Christian? What happens when a whole city becomes a Christian? What about when a whole nation becomes Christian? Should it look differently? Wouldn't it act differently if all of us are loving one another and putting the others above ourselves? Wouldn't our homes look different? Wouldn't our neighborhood and our city and our societies look different? The more and more people that come and drink of Christ that are called into the fellowship of the Son, the more transformation that takes place. That's why we pray for God to pour out His Spirit upon this valley. We want to see the gospel take root. We know that the transformation of society happens because individual hearts are turned to God and they begin to worship Him. And that has an effect on their whole life. It has an effect on the way they love their neighbor and it has an effect on how they care for their house and how they engage in their work. And so it... The result is that the collective reform that bubbles up from the ground, it's like leaven in the bread. It works its way all through into all the corners of society. From individual to family to church to state, the living waters bubble up from within. Psalm 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God. 
the holy habitation of the Most High. And we read from Ezekiel 47, and there it was a cryptic image. It's sort of hard for us to understand, but Ezekiel is getting this vision of water pouring out of the altar, just like the ceremony that Jesus is preaching this sermon during. And the water is flowing out of the altar, and then as it, as it goes out and it goes out the front door, it's deeper. And then as he measures, he goes further, and it's even deeper. Now it's up to his knees. And then he goes even further, and it's deeper. He can barely swim in it. And it's a stream that comes from the temple and goes out to the world and beautifies the world. It makes fresh the salt water. It provides food for the nations as all the trees along its bank bear fruit in their season. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. As the Gospel, as the Spirit of God goes forth, it bears fruit in the life of the world. And it is transformed so that it begins to glorify God. That's what Jesus is preaching. That those who come and drink of Him, those who find satisfaction in Him, He gives His Spirit who transforms their lives. And as their lives are transformed, so are their communities. And so the gospel goes forward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do not always adequately know our own thirst. We come this morning, some of us, are desperately thirsty. We need you. Some of us are not sure that we are thirsty. Others are not sure that you're the one that can satisfy them. Father, would you, would you pour out your Spirit on us so that we who are thirsty may come and drink of Christ, that in him we may find him infinitely satisfying, that his life would be our life, and that we would find joy and satisfaction in Him. Thank You, Father, for giving us Your Spirit so that Christ, who is seated in heaven, is constantly present with us. We thank You, Father, that we have access to living waters, inexhaustible source of life. Give us that life, we pray. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.